Many of you uh, got, had the elementary kids hand out some handouts to you. Hand out some handouts. I guess that's where they get the name. Um, as you're coming in, you might think, man, what's the occasion uh, that he would make a handout for a sermon? And the answer is, is kind of hidden in there. If you get to the discussion questions and you're thinking, where do we do discussion questions? You might notice the last one is, what are you hoping to get out of the retreat this weekend? And you might think, did Kent go speak at a retreat this weekend? And the answer is yes. And then is he now going to use those sermons for his sermons this month? And the answer is yes. Is it just because he wants to reuse material? No. I, I actually, uh, in writing this material for this, it was the Oakdale Men's Retreat, um, on the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom, um, really enjoyed getting into this material. And it was a real blessing to me. And so we're going to be going through it uh, this month. Uh, here at Northwest, and and there will be handouts each week because I made them, and so you get to hold them so that I feel like I did something worth printing. Um, Whether or not they are, uh, we'll see. Uh, But I hope it's a blessing to you. Each week you'll notice there are uh, many of the scriptures we'll be discussing on the front, on the inside. There's uh, an area where you can kind of fill in the blank as we're going through the lesson. Uh, There's discussion questions. You can do those in your families or go out to lunch with someone during the week and discuss those if you want to. And then there's time for personal reflection and and prayer in each one of these. So uh, I hope that that's something you enjoy. Uh, If you don't, throw them away at home so I don't see our trash cans full of them here on Monday, just as a courtesy. Um, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's something we need to hear in the church today because we often forget that God is great, that God is holy. We get casual about God, and when we get casual about God and have a little God, what we're going to always find is that we have a little faith. Uh, And the church today is too often uh, guilty of having small faith, and I think so much of it comes from our lack of appreciation of how great the God is that calls us to live a big life in His name. Uh, We're going to to get in this. Now, one of the things I want to caution you about in this series is that you need all of them. So we're going to be kind of working through some things because this gets through a lot of material. If at the end of any of these sermons you think, I don't like that, come next week and and we're going to keep trying to tie some of this together as we move through it. Uh, So uh, in the the book of Exodus, there is a, a moment where God is preparing to give Israel the Ten Commandments. They've been in slavery in Egypt for years, uh, and he's brought them out of slavery and brought them out of Egypt and away from Pharaoh. And we're several months after that. This is several months after uh, they have seen God perform all of the plagues and miracles that he performed in Egypt. They've seen him uh, kill the firstborn of every Egyptian household. They've seen him bring them across dry ground across the Red Sea. They've seen the waters crash down on Pharaoh's armies, and they've been delivered from all of that. And they followed the pillar of fire and cloud to Mount Sinai. And at the foot of Mount Sinai, God asked them, do you want to be my people? And they say, yes, we want to be your people. And he says, then I'm going to have to give you the rules of what it means to be my people. And this is where we're going to get the Ten Commandments. But there's several things that go wrong before things start to go right in the giving of the law. At the foot of Mount Sinai, uh, God tells Moses, here's what you need to do. If the people come too close to me while I'm giving you the commandments, they're going to die. They cannot get close to my glory while I am on the mountain. If they do, they will certainly be killed. 
Not because I'm angry, not because I'm mad at them, not because they didn't follow my rules, because that's the nature of me and the nature of you, is that if you are in my presence uh, without uh, me protecting you, the glory of God will kill you. So he tells them in Exodus 19, he tells them, listen, put a perimeter around the base of the mountain and put guards on it and give them arrows and give them stones. And if someone starts to cross that perimeter, kill them because it's better for you to kill them for them to be killed by my glory. So Moses goes down and he sets up the perimeter of guards around the mountain so that no one will come too close to God's presence and be killed by him. Then we have... In verse 20, it's about to happen, about to take place, and the Lord descends to the top of Sinai, and he calls to Moses at the top of the mountain. So Moses went up to the Lord and said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. He says, listen, I will break out against them. I I will be like a a deadly force if they get too close. And Moses says, yeah, the people cannot come to Mount Sinai because you warned us already. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. He says, God, you've already covered this. And God, like a good parent, says, I know, but I'm telling you again because it's important. Moses said to the Lord, verse 24, the Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. A third time he tells them, listen, you have to tell the people they can't come too close. They can't come too close or they're going to have problems, a deadly problem that will break out against them because my glory is such that you cannot be in my presence without dying. While they're up there, and they're up there for weeks, and while they're up there, the people decide that they're terrified of the God on the mountain and that they want a little God that'll let them do what they want, not a God that'll give them laws and instructions. They want a God like the Egyptians had. And so they build an idol in the shape of a calf, they make it out of their jewelry, and they start worshiping this idol. And they even say to this idol that they've made in the shape of a calf, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. Meanwhile... On the mountain is the God who brought them out of Egypt, who they've just said they want to be their God, giving them the commands that start with, have no gods before me. Instructions that they are already violating, even in the shadow of God's presence. And as Moses comes down and he finds the people indulging in all kinds of revelry and and pleasure-seeking, wrongdoing, all the stuff that you shouldn't be doing in God's presence or anywhere... Moses destroys the the commandments. God says, Moses, new plan. I know that I've promised that I'm going to deliver you and the people to the promised land and that I'll bring someone through you that that will redeem all people back to me. I know I've made that promise and I've got to keep that promise. But I can kill all of them and just do it through you. I'm so sick of these people. I'm so sick of their disobedience. I'm so sick of their, their giving up on me and choosing and chasing other gods. I'm just going to start over. There's this incredible scene where Moses says, no, I won't be part of that. We are your people and you are our God. We've got to work this out. And and there's this moment where God says, okay, Moses, okay. And God changes his mind and God changes his, his direction. He says, I won't kill them. 
And then he, he picks up here, and, and he's going to decide that he's going to go with the people. But first, there's this, this theme where Moses says, listen, you've got to go with us. You've got to be our God. We're going to be your people. But before they do that, uh, he says, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God says, I will show you my glory, but you cannot see my face. And when God passes by him, he declares his name. This is in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. And here's the name that God gives Moses. And we need to remember this. God is going to give Moses his name and declare it to him. And so as he passes in front of Moses, he proclaims. This is God's description of himself. He says, I'm the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet, God does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and the children of their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. So God describes himself to Moses in this moment. And he says, here's what you need to know about me. I am loving and gracious and compassionate and forgiving. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in love. I'm all of this good stuff. A lot of times we think about the God of the Old Testament as wrathful and the God of the New Testament as all of those things. And God in this moment when he's saying to Moses who he is, describes himself in a way that reminds us that Jesus is present in God even then. And that the Spirit is present in God even then. And that there's this unity in, in all of God that contains compassion and mercy and love and slow to anger. All of those things are there in God. Yet, I am very serious about sin. I'm very serious about people that break my laws and, and violate my commands and that sin against me. I take it so seriously that it has generational impact. We know from Jesus' teachings later that, that children don't inherit the, the curses of their parents, but we know from life that children sure do inherit the shortcomings of their parents. This is all, but it's here. And so here's, here's the thing. The church of 100 years ago loved everything that came after the yet, right? God is judgmental and he's critical and God is, is going to hold people accountable for their sins. And we'd get out there and we'd preach, God is going to judge you for your sins and so repent. Take sins seriously. And after a while we thought, man, that's, that's too angry. That's too angry. We need some of this stuff before the yet. And so we swing the pendulum way over here. God is merciful and compassionate and kind and he's slow to anger and he's, he's all of these abounding in love. What about the sin stuff? Yeah, we used to talk about that. We want to be before the yet now. But that's not what God says about himself. You can't ever just take half of God and think you've got the full picture. God exists in the yet. And the church today needs to reclaim the yet. And it's not and, where it's just, where it's just kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm all of this. I'm both of these yet acknowledges that these seem like they don't belong together, yet acknowledges that there's a tension between the first part of God's description and the second part of the description. And what we want to do is say, uh, there's, you know, when pendulums swing in both directions, what we want to do is say, let's just settle right there in the middle where God's kind of loving and where God's kind of serious about sin, and we'll just kind of meet him there and we'll be that too. We'll just be a church that's kind of loving or loving when we want to be, or that's serious about sin when we want to be, 
but really the rest of the time, we'll just kind of swing one way or the other or just settle it all in the middle. It's not and, it's not both, it's yet. There is a tension between the mercy and compassion and the being serious about sin. And God calls us, if we're going to be his people made in his image, we've got to be serious about both of these, all of them, all the time. Does that make sense? Not exactly. It's difficult. We've got to kind of work through some of this. But if we're going to be the people that live in the yet, you have to be serious about both of these things. Love and compassion and God's, God's seriousness that we be true to his law and that we avoid sin and evil. And it's hard. It's easier to do any other thing than embrace the yet that stands in between God's descriptions of himself. But that's what he does. And it's important to remember that this happens in the midst of God being so mad at his people that he, think, he says, I'm just going to kill them. And so there's this scene where Moses and God are working this out. And I want to go back and look at a little bit of this. You have Exodus 33, starting in, uh, in verse 3, is this conversation. He says, listen, I'll go with you. Or he says, you can keep going. I won't kill you. But here's the new plan, God says. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. God says, I want you to live now. I want you to go to the land. I've promised you the people can go, but there's one thing that you need to do that's going to make it likely that you'll survive all the way there. What's that? Go without me. What? Why should we go without you? And this is the, um, this is the, road, this is the road trip principle of, of God and Israel. If you've ever been on a road trip with three kids in the back seat of a car, you understand what God is saying. Because you're about halfway to your destination and you reach a moment where you say, you pull over and you say, get out of the car. Why? It's dangerous in here. Why? Because I'm in here and I'm about to kill you. You want us to get out of the car? Yes, the traffic outside is safer than being in here with me right now. Get out of the car. You, this happens at home too sometimes. Um, get out of the house. Why? It's not safe in here. Why? I'm here and you're here. I'm, I'm a danger to you. Get out of the house. Your punishment is kicking me out of the house? I'm protecting you. Get out of the house. That's what God is saying to Israel. You need to get out of my presence. Why? I'm afraid I'm going to kill you. Is it because God is wrathful? No, it's because Israel is a stiff-necked, stubborn people that aren't faithful to God. And he says, listen, I, I see who you are, and if you don't get out of here, we're going to have a problem. And Moses says, but if you don't go with us, how will people know that we're yours? How will people know who we are? You have to go with us. If you don't go with us, we're not going. And God again says, okay, then I will go with you. I will be your God and you will be my people and I will be in your presence. But the question is asked over and over again, can people be in the presence of a God who is so holy when we are so flawed and broken? And the Old Testament continues to wrestle with this question until the New Testament will ultimately answer it. 
can we live in God's presence? Because God is not a casual God. He's not a God that we can get cozy with. He's not a God who is little or a God who, who just kind of says, oh, shucks, you guys make all these mistakes, but don't worry about it. I'm not what that worried about sin. You can. We do it on Sunday. Mm -hmm. It is. We actually took it a few minutes ago, and you're welcome to take it right now. Thank God is right. Because uh, God is a big God. And so on one occasion, there's a tour guide uh, in Israel who's giving a tour. He's, a, he's an Israeli, he's a Jew, and he's giving a tour to some, some Christians that are there uh, that, are, that are tourists, and they're learning about Jerusalem. And they get to the Mount of Olives, and this guide says, um, hey, you need to understand something about God. God longs to come down to earth to redeem the righteous and judge the wicked. But there's a problem. His presence is like radiation, more dangerous than plutonium. Nothing can live when God comes near. If God came to earth, both the righteous and the unrighteous would perish. It would be like a thousand nuclear bombs exploding as once. We would all die. And you think, that doesn't fit with the image that we so often have of God. That doesn't fit with the image that we so often have of, uh, of the God who came down in the form of Jesus and who welcomed children to him and who, who ate with sinners and tax collectors. And we say, how does this all fit? And we have to hold on to this yet that says God is both loving and compassionate and serious about sin, that he's dangerous if you come into his presence without taking the precautions he offers us later and eventually in Jesus. But at this point, um, it, it, God is just dangerous. And if you're an Israeli who's only got the Hebrew Bible, which is the Torah, the Old Testament, and you're reading these stories, here's some of the things you know. In Leviticus chapter 10, Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu were killed in the most sacred room in the tabernacle, God's throne room, for bringing in unauthorized fire. It doesn't tell us what that is, but it, they knew, and they brought it in casually, not worrying about being in God's throne room and doing it just however they want, and they're killed. They die because they took God's presence as if it wasn't a big deal. They failed to take it seriously. In 2 Samuel 6, they're taking the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And the Ark has, is God's his throne. Aaron's sons died in the throne room. They're now carrying the throne into Jerusalem. This is the seat of judgment and the seat of mercy. This is where God uh, rules from. It's where his presence dwells. And they've just got it on a cart. They don't take it seriously that God's presence is there in their midst. And it's on a cart. When it hits a bump, a guy named Uzzah reaches out and he tries to straighten it. And when he touches the Ark, he dies. Now, did he have good intentions in that moment? He absolutely did. Was he doing what he should? Should he have let it fall and touch the ground? No. The problem is that Israel was not taking the presence of God seriously, and the result is that death takes place. Because God is so holy that if we don't give him reverence and awe and wonder, we're in trouble. We're in danger. The prophet Hosea says, they will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. There's this scene where the lion roars and the children come trembling back to the father. Now, is this the same father that runs out to welcome the prodigal son? Yes. 
And yet, is he also the, the father who roars like a lion and the children come trembling back? Yes. Abounding in love, takes sin seriously, is holy, is other, is dangerous. All of this is true. All of this is stuff that we need to be aware of. And, and, it, and we want so badly to be like, but is it just one or can it just be the other? No, it's the yet. And the book of Job wrestles through this in all kinds of different ways. And, uh, and, and the Chronicles of Narnia wrestles this in different ways. C.S. Lewis, who's written many books, books that deal with suffering and pain, but books that also deal with stories for children. And the stories for children are done uh, to tell people about who God is in ways that are imaginative. And in the Chronicles of Narnia, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, C.S. Lewis introduces a character named Aslan. And Aslan is this lion, and he's so powerful, and he's so fierce, and yet he is also good. And Aslan, in the books, is the Christ figure. He's the Christ symbol uh, in these stories. And most of us rightly think of God as our loving Father. He loves us more than any earthly father ever could, and that is certainly true. But do you ever think of God as dangerous? And C.S. Lewis invites us into this through his story. And there's one occasion that Susan and Lucy, the humans, ask about Aslan the lion. And they're asking a talking beaver because that's what animals do in Narnia. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, it's, you just kind of have to roll with it. And so they go to this beaver uh, and they ask him, is Aslan, the Christ figure, safe? Is he safe? Is he safe? The beaver replies. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And Lewis continues. People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great royal solemn overwhelming eyes, and they found that they couldn't look at him, and they went all trembly. Lewis is trying to say in a creative way to children something that is true about God, and he uses Aslan to say it, which is that this lion is fearsome, and he loves the children, and he's made the children in the story, but they cannot just casually look at him and be fine and be okay. They realize that they are, are with him, but he is something altogether stronger than them and that cannot be taken uh, lightly. You had a question? Thank God. Thank God that you're here. Um, there is, in Job, a wrestling of suffering. Job is someone who is obedient to God, and he's faithful to God, and he's, Satan comes down and says, why don't you let me take a swing at this guy? And Job wrestles with this suffering. He doesn't feel like he deserves it. And so there comes an occasion at the end of Job, uh, an occasion where Job is saying, I don't feel like I'm being treated rightly. I don't feel like I'm treated justly. I feel like this suffering isn't fair. I've lost my family. I've lost my home. I've lost my wealth. I've lost my honor. I've lost all of these things. This doesn't feel right to me. And Job even gets to the point that he says, if there was a judge that I could file a lawsuit against God, I think the judge would look at me and say, we think Job is in the right and God is in the wrong. And so if I can just find this judge, 
If I can find this judge, uh, and this is in Job 31, if you want to go kind of look at it later, he says, if I could find this judge, he could say that God is in the wrong and I'm in the right and that I shouldn't be suffering like this. I don't deserve this. And in the midst of that, uh, there's a conversation about wisdom. It's a conversation where the Job says, here's what you need to know about wisdom. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it says, where does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds in the sky. Destruction and death say only a rumor of wisdom has reached our ears. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells, for he views the ends of the earth. He sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. And he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. God understands wisdom. He created everything. Job stands up and says, I've been thinking about things and the right order of things, and I think things are out of order here. God, I think you're to blame for all the bad stuff going on in my life. I don't think I'm to blame. It's not my fault that these bad things are happening. It's your fault. And I wish there was a judge. And then God comes down at the end of Job and speaks to him out of a storm. You see, Job had gotten casual about God and decided that he knew more than God. Job had decided that that he was wiser than God and that he had the authority to challenge God. And here's what God says when he shows up and speaks to Job out of the storm. Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Were you there when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set, Job? And he keeps asking Job questions, one after the other, question after question, for four chapters. It's one of the longest uh, speeches that God gives in all of Scripture. And he comes down to Job and listen to some of the questions he asks. Uh, The wicked are denied their light and the upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Job, have you been to the bottom of the ocean? Because I know it's at the bottom of the ocean. Do you know where the house of light is or where the darkness resides? Can you take them to their places? Do you know their paths and dwellings? Who cuts a channel for the rain to fall, a path for the thunderstorm? Do you do that, Job? Who, Job, do you, I mean, you just keep going through this over and over again. Job, can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with the flood of water? Can you do that, Job? I can do that. I can do that. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will it stay by your manger at night? I can out tell an ox to do that. And he goes through chapter after chapter of telling Job all the things that God can do and Job can't. Why does he need to do this to restore Job's wisdom? The answer is that Job has lost the fear of the Lord and God's going to put it back in him. You're going to be afraid of me. Why? Because that's the beginning of wisdom. And when you have wisdom, you rightly order all the parts of life and you can make sense of suffering and you can make sense of death and you can make sense of, uh, of putting your faith in God and not in yourself. 
So fear of the Lord comes to be the beginning of wisdom. And he's got to convince Job that God knows more than he does. And he does it by impressing Job with how awesome and powerful God is. We sometimes forget that God is that powerful. And we start to think that God's not a big deal. We start to think that we could walk into the throne room of God, walk up to God and be like, high five, man, great job creating everything, way to be. God's not like that. He's other. And yet, he's loving, compassionate, merciful, all of that too. He's all of these things at the same time. The end result of God's speech to Job is this. Job looks at him and says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak, I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Today, we live in a world where many people question whether God is in control or not. And if we listen to the message that God gives Job, we're reminded that God is big enough and is in control. Today we live in a world where many people question God's morality and think maybe in our advanced learning, it's been 2,000 years since this book was written, maybe we know more today than God knew then. We live in a world today where many people believe that the God who set the laws of science into motion by the power of his own mouth, that those laws somehow call into question whether or not God exists or not. We live in a world that's asking these questions. Why do we ask these questions that disorder the way that the world is? Because we've lost the fear of God. And if we can have the fear of God put back into us while still holding on to the love and mercy of God, we can begin to become a group of people who have a rightly ordered view of the world, and it's the beginning of wisdom, reverence, awe, wonder. We're getting things out of order. We value our thoughts above God's thoughts. We need the lesson Job got. We need to get rid of our delusions that God is little and safe so that we can stop having a faith that is little and safe. And here's the problem. The problem in the church today is that we love and worship and desire safety more than anything. We want to be safe. Listen to our prayers when we send out a mission team. God, help them to have safe travels and to be safe while they're gone and bring them home safely. We forget to pray that God send them on an adventure, that God help them to join him in his vision and mission for the lost and the poor and the broken. God, I ask that when you send our people out that they would change the world. We're more interested in safety than transformation. More interested in, in being able to get back home than we are in changing where we're going. The church has got to give up our obsessive pursuit of safety and security and say, hey, things may feel uncomfortable and vulnerable, but it's because we're joining God in his vision and mission, and we're not going to stop. 
because he's a big God with a big vision. And if we're going to be his people, it's going to take a big faith. And it's going to mean that sometimes we're going to have to get out of our comfort zone and uncomfortable. Sometimes we have to get out of our comfort zone and go where God sends us. But the reality is that God's big enough that that's okay. And God's in control even when it feels like things are out of order. God's wisdom is bigger than our wisdom. And if we begin to embrace that, then God's going to take care of the rest. Because he's in control and we aren't. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be really looking at what it means to have the wisdom that comes from a right view of God as being big enough, strong enough, huge enough to be loving and serious about sin at the same time. Let's have an invitation song.